Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Started Up Podcast. I am here today with a friend of mine, Thaddeus Rex. He is the iTeam founder, and he's a competitive edge expert. More on that in a second. Uh, but what he also has been is a mentor to not only me, but to several of my students. So, Thaddeus, thanks for being on the show. Hey, man. it's great to be here. Thank you, Don. Um, so I'm going to, yeah, this is what I led with. Can I, cause you have walked me through this, um, a couple times is one of the reasons why I really wanted to have you on. A lot of people don't really assess their competitive edge. They, they think that they, you know, like that one thing they lead in with, but they don't really dig in. So tell us what, how to assess and what your can really your competitive edge is. I think it starts with your, uh, focus on how you are, whether it's your own personal focus or the focus of your business. And too often, uh, we evaluate the, we, our focus is on the opportunities that we see. What happens? What opportunity fell in my lap today? Or who did I call who might say yes? Um, and if we evaluate the opportunity, we're always thinking, should I do this opportunity or not? Will this opportunity help me? Will this opportunity um, you know, create profit or relationships or whatever it is? And instead, maybe before we look at all the opportunities, we should instead look at ourselves and ask, you know, who is it we want to become? What do we want this company to be? What do we want ourselves to be as individuals? What do we want our careers to look like, our jobs to look like, the businesses we start? And a huge part of that is not just what we want. I think there's too much emphasis on following your passion because if your passion, so there's a reason there are a bunch of out of work actors in LA because there are a ton of people who are really passionate about acting, but the market doesn't demand enough actors to support us all. So we can't all be actors. And there are very few people who are passionate about collecting garbage. But I have a friend who runs a company that collects recycling and, and garbage and he's built an empire out mm -hmm. of nothing because he went and did the one thing no one has any passion for and made a great <laughs> living at it. Yeah. So I think you, you really wanna combine not just what you like, but also what you're good at. And what are some of the skills? Because there are, there are skills, every single person has that skill set that's a little different than everybody else. Mm -hmm. And companies have it too. And so if you can find the one thing that makes you, sets you apart where your competition um, really can't compete with you, then if you focus on that, suddenly you start to look at all the opportunities through that lens. Does this opportunity utilize my competitive edge mm. or not? Because there are way more opportunities out there than you have time to address. And one of the biggest mistakes people make is chasing too many opportunities. Oh, yeah, guilty. Shiny object guy over here. And, and maybe that is part of your competitive edge. Um, and then there has to be someone else on the team who helps discern, who helps filter that, right? Uh, uh huh. Yeah. His, I mean, his, that was his uh, name is Joe and Hunter. Yes. Yeah. One of the two guys who started Google, Larry Page and um, Sergey Brin. Yeah. yeah. And they're they one's one's the organized, one's the like shiny object guy, and that's that's a great to have that combination. So long as you have the checks and balances to uh, filter those opportunities really quick. Yeah. No. I, that's. So how do you how do you go through and honestly assess, or do you need somebody to intervene? Because, you know, we have our own confirmation biases. Even when right. we're trying to not have confirmation biases, we have them. Right. So how does one go through? I just wrote this song, and it's the greatest song ever. We're going to be famous. Yes, says the musician. Yes. <laughs> uh, so how do you do that? How do you do that? Uh, so I think it starts. Absolutely, you have to have outside counsel, not not attorney counsel, but somebody from the outside. You can't see the bottle. You can't see the label from inside the bottle. Yeah. It's just a fact of life. And it's amazing when you 
um, even looking in the mirror, we don't we don't see ourselves the way that everybody else does. Yeah. And so I think it's important to have those outside people that you um, go to for advice. And some people tell you what you want to hear, and they make you feel really good about it, whatever the problem is, and they you know go get them. You know you're you're the kind of person who can overcome this. You've overcome so much, and it's going to happen. And you feel really good leaving that conversation. And then you have those other people who are really willing to point out problems. And, and it's really easy to avoid those people, and I would recommend don't avoid them because the people who are willing to point out problems are the people who actually point out the problems. Mm. And if you don't know the problems, then how can you possibly miss the stumbling stone stumbling blocks if you don't even know where they are? Okay. Uh, so as, as one thing I've really enjoyed in the last um, couple months is that I've, I've been going through this process of, of having to mediary tell me you know what's what's right and what's wrong and I think that's been cathartic but um, when you're working with people um, I'm assuming that you have to prep them to start uh, how do you how do you say this? Uh, opening up to criticism or like because I'm sure when, when somebody loves what they're doing and they need they're at the point and, and we're gonna get into the I team and, and I want to sure. talk about that but here in a second but like is there even a, a pre-process of getting them ready to Consider what their strengths are? Well, in my process, I would never criticize. Okay. Um, I would just ask questions. Okay. And sometimes in that process of asking questions, people are confronted with that, oh, wait. Uh-huh. Um, I, I can't relax on the beach all day and work hard at the same time, but that's really what I want to do. And motivation's a funny thing because people are, um, we say we want to self-motivate. And why do we have to self-motivate? Because we want to make ourselves do something we don't want to do. Mm. And there's a paradox in that. Like, yeah. I want to do something. I, I want to work out every morning, but I, I don't work out every morning. I work right. out for, I'm, I'm relatively good. I mean, I work out like three or four mornings a week, but it's not near as hard as I would like. Right. I'd like to like really be strong, but I don't make that decision yeah. when the time comes, even though I want it. So motivation, there, there are multiple you know motivations inside us. And we have to sometimes learn how do we overcome those subconscious biases and things, you know, it's easier to stay in bed than to get up and go jump on the treadmill. Yes. And so we have to make ourselves do things we don't want to do. And and there's a paradox in that, but I think it's really important to have that outside counsel because sometimes when you have the outside person, it makes yeah. it easier to push through, to see your real <laughs> strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, it's funny you say that. Like, um, and, and not that I'm going to go down, down the, the, the workout road too much because I'm going to feel guilty, but like <laughs> J- Jocko Wilnick, Every yeah. do you know every morning four thirty he takes a picture of his watch yep and posts it and he's like I'm at it are you and you're like take on it I hate yeah. you um, so yeah no even even if that's your external source I mean I think you most people need one more than just a picture of of, of a watch at four thirty but at least kind of gets you in that mode um, although you know you know how I am I, I like to on this podcast though um, filter everything through uh, the lens of of students as well I mean. Part of my audience is educators and students as well. Absolutely. One of the unique things that you have is you've now become a really successful, um, you know, I team. You you work with corporations. You work with smaller entrepreneurs, mid-sized, large cap. But you also have an educator background, which I think is really unique for you to be on this show. So when you start talking about you know motivation and finding your competitive edge. What does that mean to a 17-year-old? Yeah, I know what a third t- a th- uh, tier three intervention is, and what RTI is, and what Uh-oh. NTLB is, Uh-oh. Yeah, all these buzzwords. Um, it takes me back. 
Uh, okay, for educators, <laughs> here's a quick way to explain it. So if we look at Competitive Edge as a, as a company, and if you want to help your students understand their own Competitive Edge, sometimes it's great to have examples to look to first. Yeah. And so, and this was part of my own experience in learning part of my Competitive Edge, is if you look at a company like Disney, and mm. Disney has this um, competitive edge of, every, it's just consistency, and it's that brand position. Every single thing Disney does is family-friendly wonderment. Yeah. And they created that, um, that, that sense of purpose when they launched Disneyland. And they had learned through trial and error. Uh, Walt Disney himself learned, hey, when I make um, these cartoons that are uh, G-rated and that appeal to adults and grown-ups, like Dumbo was the lesson. He was like, that's what people love. Fantasia? It was a passion project of his that failed miserably. Yeah. And so he went back, He and Disney did not follow the passion project. He went back to what worked. Uh-huh. And that family-friendly wonderment is now in every store, every amusement park, every movie. Yeah. And so I can call everybody on the podcast. Like We could send an email out tomorrow saying, hey, we're going to be in downtown Indy. We're going to see the new Disney film next week. Who wants to meet up? And everybody would know right away if they want to be there or you not. You know exactly what you're getting. And tr- can, you know, just as an example, now, what if we send that email? Hey, the new Warner Brothers movie is coming out next week. Who wants to go? You don't know what you're going to get. You don't right. have no idea what you're right. going to get. Right. And that's because Warner Brothers, and this bugged me for a long time because this is what I was helping companies do is become more like Disney, build that branding throughout the mm. company. Mm. And then I'm sitting there, I'm realizing, I'm like, there's something missing in what I'm doing because there are companies that are hugely successful that have no brand position. Like, can anybody tell me the difference between United Airlines and Delta? Except for where their hubs are. There's, I, I can't, could, if I didn't see the logo, I couldn't tell you which plane I'm on. Yeah. There is no brand position. Mm-hmm. They're running a completely different strategy. And so uh, this this can just be great examples to help your students learn like that value prop or that that sense of like moral, um, which Disney really has picked like this moral line. Like everything we do is going to be family-friendly wonderment. Yeah. You can bring us the most profitable movie idea ever, and we're going to say no because it doesn't fit our value. Right. right? And, and that, that can be great for an individual and as well. And they see that long-term in that as well. There is a long-term game, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, they're very well positioned for this takeover. They're probably the only media company that's going to be able to lead in the Netflix-Amazon battle as opposed to uh, just react, well, get acquired. Right, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, th- but there's a completely different strategy out there, and it took me a while to research this, and I was reading all these articles in the Harvard Business Review, and um, there is another strategy that focuses on resources where a company more or less ignores the brand positioning and really focuses on their competitive edge, which is not a a brand focus, it's uh, resources. And this is why Warner Brothers can do what they do because they don't have a a brand focus, they don't have this value focus, but they do have a resource focus. And there's a reason people aren't starting new movie studios. I mean, it's a massive barrier to entry, it's really expensive to start a movie, to have the team together and all this. So they have these resources. If you look at Facebook, Facebook doesn't need a brand. Facebook has the audience. And the fact that other that this audience is using it right. makes Facebook extremely valuable. Right. And that's the competitive edge. That's the resource they have to protect at all costs because mm. if they lose the audience, they have nothing. Right. And so I think um, if you look at a student, even, a, um, even as an educator or a mentor, or if you're in business and you're trying to lead your team, it's really important to help people figure out what their competitive edge is because the moment they begin to apply that, they'll begin to excel. And their effort will um, uh, sort of ramp up. It'll, it'll. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It'll, uh, 
extrapolate. It'll multiply itself. Right. But wh- where is that? Um, what's step one? I mean, like kids are really hard on themselves. Sure. And and, and I'm probably going to save this nugget to the end. I, I think we have this culture of a hustle and grind. I'll sleep when I die. More on that later. Yeah. So I think a lot of kids are already hard on themselves. So them. Okay. Actually, you have two extremes. I'm the, you know, <laughs> the tip. Like I say, typical. The grandiosity of being 17 year old like i am freaking amazing and i mean i remember when i was 18 i seriously that is i at one time i thought how much really is there to know i'm really freaking i got this all i got this life thing figured out sure i mean I, and then i remember in college just realizing that oh wow the amount of things i don't know is infinite um but how do does one 16 17 year old start assessing their strengths so I think it goes back to <clears throat> some are personality, there's mm-hmm. skill set, mm-hmm. and then there's personality traits. Okay. And so beginning to understand your personality traits um, is really critical. And if you look at, there are lots of personality profiles out there, but the um, the one that is more or less considered the valid one that's been validated scientifically multiple times is called the Big Five. And if you just Google it, you'll look it up. You know, it's easy to find, and you can. There are free assessments out there you can go take just for fun, and and there are basically five um, uh, traits that they look for in the personality that defines your underlying desires, motivations, and, and what you're going to do in life. Uh, the first one is extroversion. How extroverted or introverted are you? And there's two ways to look at extroversion and introversion. One is where do you get your energy? Do you feel more energized by talking or do you feel more energized by being alone? Uh, But a a second, I think, more sophisticated way to look at it is how do you process ideas? Mm. And if if you're the type of person where before you like to speak in front of the group, you want to think it through and make sure you're saying the right thing first, that's an introvert. And the extrovert, well, talk, 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 and they <laughs> and they wait to get feedback or in the process of talking helps them make a decision and they really struggle to make a decision without talking it through. And that's the primary difference. Mm. And uh, But that that makes a huge difference on how what kind of career you're going to like, what yeah. kind of um, classroom you're going to like, what kind of mentors you're going to like is going to have a huge impact. And knowing little simple things like that about yourself. Uh, that actually excites me just because I, I've seen that um, more educators are starting to, whether it's the Myers-Briggs or whether it's the Enneagram or whatever, I've noticed that there's been some teachers that are starting to look at... The Ouija um, board, right? Whatever it takes. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, more more of the the scientific approach of like, because if, if you just, like the way you feel, or again, back to cognizant, you know, the biases, like some of these really good tests might start giving you an indication of, of what you're better aligned for Absolutely. than your dad's expectations of you going to that college because he likes the basketball team. Sorry, I was raised in Indiana. It's right. Whatever. Yeah, um, I understand that. So, uh, 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 yeah, I, I like I like that you're taking the approach of it's more than just a hunch or a feeling or a, I like arguing with my mom so I should be a lawyer kind of thing. It's It should be... Um, a little, little more structured than that. So let's just say that you know they, they, they start getting a little bit of feedback on, on what some of their strengths are. Uh, what's next? So once you know a little bit more about your strengths, um, the next step is to... It, so in school, it takes a long time to learn about the world and to yeah. know where do these strengths make sense. And mm-hmm. I think that is in order to jump that knowledge gap, it really takes mentors. That's where yeah. the good. That's yeah. where it takes the teachers, the guidance counselors, um, parents, 
you know, your uncle, uh, aunt, you know, all these people in your life who are, who are, people love to give advice. Yeah. And I think the, one of the simple ways to get that sort of feedback is to, instead of asking people if they will help you, is to ask them, what, what should I do to improve? Mm -hmm. What should I do to make this better? Whatever mm. it is you're working on, you know, it could be a piano recital, yeah. or it could be your, um, you know, your new business idea, um, or it could just be a, a reading report for language arts class. And and if you ask, you know, what can I do to make this better, then it opens the person up to help you improve. Right. You almost said criticism. It well, does like, that too. Yeah, no, it does that a, too. Well, as 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 one of the things that I've always been trying to to do, and it's hard, is that the ecosystem that I've at times been able to create is that. That's what my classroom's for, mm -hmm. a time to circle up and then give you feedback. Now, oftentimes we get into smaller groups and like I'm too busy and, and life gets in the way kind of thing. But at its very best, I think, you know, when we become a group, we become that trusted mentor for each other. And what my strengths are, yours not, and, and vice versa. And, and we can kind of bounce things off of each other and then have our best interests, which ironically is my next point. You've you've kind of built something cool there where it's almost kind of like what we're talking about, except you're working with high powered adults. You, you, you've been working with the I team. Sure. And um, I, like that's very much the ecosystem you're building. Yeah. The I team. Yeah. Yeah. To create. So I mean, we all have the same issue where we are, we're effective, um, but there's always the world's changing and, and we can't really sit in an environment where we can just kick back yeah. And hey, I'm gonna take this business over from so and so who's retiring, and they're gonna show me how to run it, and then I'll run it for 20 years, and then I'll do the same thing for the next person. That doesn't really exist anymore because right. you're gonna be disrupted, and so you have to really be forward thinking and looking at what's gonna come next. How do we adapt to it? Um, I mean, most businesses have, uh, you know, margins are being crunched, and um, and at the same time, there's all sorts of software competitors coming out who, or maybe you are software. And uh, you know, you're just trying to get out there and get enough traction before you get taken out by Amazon or whoever else. So there, it's a real, uh, it's a lifelong, I think, pursuit. And honestly, I mean, isn't that one of the most exciting things about life is trying to improve and, and build something else yeah. and, and create something significant in the world? Um, I mean, there's a reason people don't, not very many people just hang out on the beach all day. Because as, as attractive as that sounds, after three or four years. I, I, yes. That's ironic. That I'll get your feedback on this. A lot of times when I'm working with a student, and um, you know how my class is, it's literally like, "What do you want to do?" And um, oftentimes the students are perplexed by that because you know normally in school is you know this is what you're working on, and it's very narrow, and and all of a sudden they have a class where you can work on what you want to work on. Right. I don't know. Well, what are your dreams and aspirations? I don't know. And so I'll, a lot of times I'll ask them. You won five, like you won five million dollars. Five million dollars is not enough for you to retire on, but you can take the next ten years off. I said, "What would you do?" Now the most cliche answer is, "You know what? Go to the beach and relax." I said, "You'll be bored after a week." And they think about it. And they're like, "Hey, you're right." And I said, "Okay, okay. travel." And I said, "You'll be jet lagged and weary after a month, maybe two. Mm -hmm. I said, so once you come down from this high that you won $5 million and you've traveled for three months and you've laid on the beach for a week, what do you do? That's a fantastic and thought experiment. Yeah. That really makes them go. And you know what most people, not just students, when I take 
people through this. You know what most people instinctively, once they, they get to get that distant look in their eye and they really start searching the brain, you know what most people say? What? I want to help people. Mm-hmm. Okay, in what capacity? And then, ready, shockingly, they go through what their strengths are. You know what? I'm really good at listening to people. Mm-hmm. I think I could I could get more people to less you know worry less about blah blah blah. Or you know what? I'm really good at motivating people. Or you know what? I'm really good at delegating power. Or you know what? And uh, like it's such a simple experiment, but it it takes money out of the equation. Yeah. And it makes them think, okay, I don't have to worry. I don't have to panic. I don't have to adapt to how am I going to pay my rent. I can think about what's important to me. And uh, yeah, it, it's uh, sometimes reality comes crashing back down and then like, but still, and I don't have $5 million, but at least for that one shining moment, they kind of focus on what I think is, is, is important. Absolutely. It's funny. I do a similar thought experiment with, even with my business owners and CEOs, always very goal oriented people. Yeah. And so you, you begin to ask, you know, what are your goals in the next five years? And they, they always usually have a list. You say, okay, you just accomplished all of them. Now, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. And they never have the answer right away. It takes, we have to stop and think. Uh Like, whoa, everything, this list of goals suddenly, I don't know. That's good, especially for that personality Um, type. And I think another thing, too, is to look at those goals. Um, So sometimes there will be conflicts where the goal might be. uh, So if your goal is, I want to, I want to sell my business and, and run a startup. I want to be in Silicon Valley or, or a place like, you know, Tech Valley someplace. And I want to raise money and start a new business. And, but I also want to spend more time with my family. And I want to, um, I don't want to miss, uh, you know, my brother's soccer game or whatever it is. Suddenly, it, this, that's a conflict in goals because mm-hmm. reality says, well, a startup requires 100-hour weeks for the first three or four years. There's a certain amount of dedication there. And if you also want to make sure you don't miss any family vacations with your cousins or with your kids or whoever it is, um, you're probably going to have to choose. And unless you're merely a, you know, the financial entity in a new startup. And so helping people sort of realize that there are Options you have to choose between, and everybody has limited resources. Even even the very rich still have very limited time, mm. and that resource um, can get gobbled up very quickly. And realizing where is it? Like we always ask people to rate when they come in every every meeting, and I think this is something um, you know teachers could do with their students too. Is just ask if you have to rate yourself on a one to seven scale on your health, mm-hmm. and health you know seven is like. You are rock, you are freaking Bruce Lee. You're you've never been in better shape. Or the one is you know you're in the hospital and you've just been told you you know you may not make it. So on that scale, where would you put yourself on a on a one to seven scale? Um, but then we don't just do health. We do health, income, which is your you know if you have a business, it's your business income or your personal income, your time, and your significance. How much do you feel that your actions are making the world the place you want it to become? <laughs> Yeah, like I remember, um, kind of even on the, the the thought experiment of like you've accomplished all these things. It, it reminded me, I, I'm I kind of like Shark Tank. I've got some issues, but one of the episodes I watched is uh, Damon John was talking about this guy, and he wanted to matter. He wanted to make an impact, and he's like, okay, there's two things you have to do first. You have to make it, then you have to master it, then you can matter, right? And um, when you were kind of going through that, I mean, because you have a unique 
the I team's unique in the sense that these aren't people or or businesses that are like in thought. They're they're not unicorns. They're they're going. You're getting them to that mastery point. Yeah. So, and this may this may leapfrog a little bit um, some of the educational talk, but there was. Um, there is a real focus on the I team, which I think there's a gap that's been missed in leadership mm. where most, when I went out to, I started getting requests to, to do more coaching and I went out and I started looking at trainings were available. Most of them were created by the boomer, by or for the boomer generation. And it was a very um, old school approach to leadership built on the industrial age. And then you, and then we've had this huge transition with the dot-com era, it's completely shifting everything on its head in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole generation that was mi- missed in the middle of that shift, which was the Gen Xers, yeah. where what I've seen about um, with people who are now in their mid-30s to, to you know, mid-50s is uh, you know, we grew up in a world that was very analog mm-hmm. and then had to shift to a digital world before we had any power base. No mm-hmm. network, no, you know, we didn't have money, we didn't have property, we didn't have the yeah. power base, we didn't have the job or the position to tell people to go figure that out. And so what I've seen is now the people who now have made that leap and are in their mid-30s to mid-50s and are successful, they had to be really adaptable people because we there was a lot of change. So I was I was 19 years old when I got my first email account. Yeah. Um, and I don't even remember how old I was when Facebook came out, but I was in my 30s. Yeah. And uh, so adapting constantly to this new stuff. And what I've also seen is because the, that generation lived between these the boomers and the millennials and the digital age, and they did that for 20 years, is that the successful ones are really good bridge builders. And they're mm. really good at connecting those two audiences and they carry that skill into everything they do. And so they're A, really adaptable and B, really good bridge builders. And I honestly think that those are two of the skills, regardless of which generation you grew up in, those are the two that will make you most successful in the wow. future. Wow. No, I totally agree. That made so much sense to me. And I also see like, um, I hate to use the term thought leader, but like I gotta give credit sometimes there's credit due. Gary really likes to, you know, Gary's also a big fan of Gary, but there's some things that he has called sure. and he understands Gen Z and millennials at a deep level, but he also understands the the, the analog era. Yeah. And and you know, people like Seth and and, and and Gary, like they that you're right, they're bridge builders. And uh, wow, yeah, I'm sorry. My brain is racing with all these things. It's like, that is why they speak to so many people is that they, they've seen, they adapted to the other side and they have, so they have empathy for the people that are like, well, in my day. Right. Uh, and yet they also aren't that far removed from the fast moving. And yet they have the sagely advice of both. Right. You know, I, I think that the people that are calling for a balance, um, are, are okay to say, well, okay, grandpa, that's not how we work. And we're like, no, there's some wisdom here in, in you know, de-escalating and, and unplugging and, and hustle and grind Absolutely. and all that sort of stuff. There's a, a lot of research showing that the more time people spend on social media, which is supposed to be socializing, actually increases their sense of loneliness. <clears throat> yeah. And, and there is a huge, there's a deep human connection that takes place in person that just can't be replicated yeah. on through texting or a video camera mm-hmm. and you just you miss that because and it, it is the fact that I if I'm if I'm with you via camera only I have the option of turning that off anytime, <laughs> right yeah. yeah oh I can't hear you what what you're, you're breaking up you what what yeah. Uh, yeah 
ah, I'm out of here. And you, you can't do that in a real life conversation. So suddenly when things come up like religion or politics or, um, or somebody's upset because their dog died and something they would never reveal, like they can't hide a lot of those things in right. person. And we can't hide behind the digital screen either. And we suddenly have to um, realize, you know what? I have this opinion and they have that opinion or that experience. And maybe I'm not right all the time. And maybe they're not, maybe we should talk. Right. No, that's so important. Well, and just the danger now of call out culture. I swear to God, I've seen people turn on each other. I'm not sure if I want to go down this rabbit hole, but no, like, you know, <laughs> the, the, the people feel so, I heard him, I heard him misspeak first. Right. And I'm going to be the cool one that calls out this guy and make sure that I can ruin his life so I can seem better. And that is a that has been a dangerous thing. And I think that again, the people that are calling for calm are these bridge builders talk about. Yes. You know, the, the, yeah. the Generation X. The the MTV watching the X Factor. When it, <laughs> when it, when the MTV when it was cool guys. Right, exactly. Um one more thing, I, I, and again, I, you you live in both worlds, and and so I, I really appreciate um, you having the educational background and, and you working with uh, the CEO type, the startup type. Um, but I'm also afraid that there's a, and I, I alluded to this earlier, that this um, cool culture of uh, I'll sleep when I'm dead, hustle and grind. You know, what's the point? Okay, so let's go into that. I'm like, I, I'm more. I mean, like, I, I love hard work. Yeah. But, you know, there's a point here. Right. So, so the, I can speak to this a lot. I, I went into the music business um, after school with a degree in philosophy. And what I learned from philosophy was I wanted to become a philosophy professor because I thought, you know, people need to, people don't always think it through. <laughs> and that's what I thought. But then I realized, I was like, wait, if I become a philosophy professor, all I do is sit in these little classrooms with 25 students or whatever, because you don't have three, 400 person lecture halls as a philosophy professor. It's like the 20 kids who already want to do it. And you're like, well, they're going to do it whether I'm there or not. So what's the point? Right. And then and I learned, you know, the, the best educators do it with entertainment. The best authors entertain you as they're mm. teaching their lesson. The best, mm. and, and some of the best philosophy can be in a novel or a movie. It doesn't have to be in a dry, like right. academic journal, right? And so I went into the music business and I thought, you know, that's, that's what I'm gonna do. And, and, and probably not surprisingly, because I had this bent that I really wanted to use art to teach and to, and to change the way people thought about things. I wound up creating uh, educational music and, and wound up on PBS. And it started in these, uh, you know, back when I was doing uh, bookstore shows and I noticed if I got the kids dancing, a parents would buy a CD. <laughs> and then I started writing songs about Alice in Wonderland and Greens and Ham and Captain Underpants. And then I started getting requests from teachers to come play at their school. And I'm like, wow, school's paid pretty decent for one of these assembly things. And then, uh, and then I get onto PBS and then I'm on PBS. And so I start calling theaters and building stay equipped, forget nightclubs and bookstores. Uh, they're returning my phone calls. I'm gonna call <laughs> theaters and build these stage shows. And not smell like smoke. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that part was the best. And I, and, but all the time I wanted to give the audience something and take them on a journey. And I was with, it goes back to these songs I was writing about books and I would get comments you know, little Johnny never read a book before, and now he's he's reading, and he's read six books. And what are you doing? And and I would get emails from um, you know parents saying, our, our "Little Janie is writing poems every day. What what are you doing?" And administrators and principals started asking me to train their teachers. How do you, how can you teach our teachers how to do this? And I was right. like, "Uh, I don't know. You get them guitars. I don't like I yeah. I just for me it was just like I love it, 
I'm just sharing what I love and, and they love it too. But I didn't know why, how it worked. And so I went and read a, uh, a book by a guy named Daniel Pink, Drive. <laughs> and, um, and I read that book and, and it blew my mind. And I was like, oh, this, this intrinsic motivation thing, this is what I've been doing. Mm-hmm. And I went back, you know. Um, and so I, I did what was recommended at the end of the book. And by this time I had, I had a team, like I had musicians who, who were not technically employees, but who worked for me regularly. I had an office staff and, and a booking agent and all these. And so I, I, I was, I started doing it. I started giving them all more autonomy and all this stuff, like the book said, and everything fell apart. Like it was a nightmare because they all started going autonomously and, and mm-hmm. very different directions. And mm-hmm. I was like, this is not, uh, uh, the kind of motivation I wanted. And so I called up, uh, 95% of that book is based on the work of a guy named Dr. Edward DC. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of the founder of the field and now runs the um, business school at University of Rochester. And I had an event in Rochester. So I call him up and I'm like, is there any way I could possibly, here's what I'm doing and what I'm working on and the, and the hurdles I'm hitting. And is there any possible way I could take you out to lunch while I'm in town? And he was like, nope, I'm busy, but I can do breakfast. Uh, I was like, awesome. <laughs> and so uh, we went out to breakfast and I, and I laid out and he said, well, the, the problem with self-help books is in order to, um, they have to make things seem easier than they really are. So most of the, the uh, methodology parts get dumbed down and that's what happened in the book drive. And he laid out what, what really needs to happen. And he showed me like why my shows were working, but then started training me, like teach me how to duplicate it. And mm-hmm. I was really lucky because I was out there and my job was just, my goal was just to get more kids reading and helping educators do that. Like he just helped me like as a partner mm-hmm. in the background. I probably shouldn't even say this, but it, it didn't cost me very much. And he, um, and, and so I answered all my questions and emails for like three years. I was just in very close contact mm. and began to apply that. And I learned um, that there is a series of, of uh, actions you can take to help increase not only um, someone else's motivation, but your own. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, and I think this can be a critical step is, is as you're helping um, uh, students and, and team members and everybody learn their strengths. And what their edge is, you also, it doesn't do any good to know what you're good at if you're not motivated to take advantage of it. Yeah. And we have to learn how to increase that motivation as well. And, and so this sense of autonomy is really important. Everybody out there, it's like a whole law of human nature. Everybody is seeking. And when we say sense of autonomy, what we really mean is they want to feel like their decisions matter, mm-hmm. like they're in control of their life, mm-hmm. like there's some significance there. Uh, second thing is everybody's seeking a sense of competence. We all want to pursue activities that we perceive ourselves to be good at. Now, as educators, this is interesting. It's not true competence, but sense of competence that really matters. And so if you um, have a student and you can help them feel competent at an activity, they'll actually work harder at it and in the process become competent. And the last is a sense of connectedness. And we all want to feel part of the group. We yeah. want to feel like we're part of something bigger than ourselves. And, uh, and if we can find ways to harness this, this is really the key that takes um, a very small idea like a search engine and turns it to a monster company like Google, mm-hmm. is a bunch of people who are really motivated working together toward a single goal. Yeah, that purpose. And having that, that sense of purpose is key. Having that vision, and that's how you take autonomy. With, especially with a surrounding community that believes in that, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, well, that's why it's been interesting to see certain corporate cultures really thrive because it's not window dressing that they are there for a purpose right. and they do live and breathe that culture. And I've done it both ways. I've worked with companies where they have, um, they're talking the talk, but right. they haven't, um, 
Mm-hmm. You're like, wait, it's just like you go to the Hyatt and you, or wherever, any hotel nowadays, and you see that little tag in the shower that says, hey, if you hang up your towels, we can help save all this detergent. And we can save the planet. Um, oh, and we also left the air conditioner turned down for you because we know people like that. And the light, we left the light on for you, right? And so it's okay to do one, to do whatever you want. It's your hotel. But if, you're, if I'm your employee and you're telling me, hey, hang this little thing up, we're going to save the world and make sure the light's turned on because people like that, and you're like, uh, it's severe mismessaging. Yeah. And you just, you break the values. You, you, what mm-hmm. you're saying is we're going to say these values because we think people like them, but we don't really care ourselves. Right. And that destroys your culture internally. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I've had companies, I'm in the middle of a big project right now with a company that actually does walk the walk mm-hmm. and just hasn't talked about it enough so the team members so they're doing yeah. it but the team members don't know they're stocking more parts they're doing better service mm-hmm. they're in many ways like they're they're there's a reason they're like the number one dealer in the, in the country for what they do and um but if you ask the team members the team members wouldn't know how to repeat it and it's mm. just because sometimes you're walking the walk because you care and you know the value yeah. and you just have done it and that's how you were trained and brought up but you have to learn how to talk about it because it's the the language and the words are what gives us meaning as humans and helps us to see and understand and communicate this this value. And uh, and it doesn't matter how amazing Start Ed Up is at helping change that classroom. Mm-hmm. If I don't know how to talk about it, I can't go change another classroom. Right, and spread, yeah. Well, Thaddeus, I, I appreciate you being on. Uh, again, you living in both worlds, I knew it would make an impactful uh, podcast. So if you're listening, if you're parent, teacher, student, or startup enthusiast, uh, obviously uh, Thaddeus has got plenty to uh, to offer. So I want to point people to your direction. Where should they start? Thanks, Don. Um, ThaddeusRex.com is the website and uh, thaddeusrex.com slash iTeam has information about the uh, CEO coaching groups. Although I really think you would probably like the video section on the Mm -hmm. website is where you'll see a few of the ideas that might be able to help your students and your team members and people you're really trying to work to push forward. Cool. Awesome. Now, uh, uh, one last point. Um, Talk and talk, walk and walk. So you've been... You've helped me. You've helped some of my students. Uh, even one of my students called me the other day. He's like, hey, this guy reached out. And like, oh, yeah, that's Thaddeus. And, and you're always giving value. And, and I That guy I works that. so hard. I want him to. He has that. He has so much awareness. And people can see what he's doing. Oh, his day's coming. Like, hey, yeah. let's just connect that yeah. to a what's the actual thing you're going to charge money for? Because yep. what you're doing is valuable. But he just hasn't targeted the right. Anyways. Yeah. No, he's he's on his way. And But, yeah, I, I, I like the fact that, yeah, you're, you're, you're reaching out. You're bringing value. And. That's always been you in a nutshell. So I think it's even how we met. I was just like, <laughs> hey, there's this guy. I should, I should uh, help him out. So I've, I've appreciated that. And for that matter, thanks for coming out. I love doing interviews in person. Uh, I like this so much. I, don't get me wrong. I, I've appreciated people doing the Skype interviews. But, man, I love this more than ever. But, hey, guys, there it is. Uh, he gave you all the information. I highly recommend you reach out to him. Uh, he is a guy that can walk you through strategies that I didn't think about and uh, can really, really, really build this capacity. So if you have an interest, reach out I'm to I'm going to say one more thing before, sure. you, before you hit off, because at the beginning of the podcast, I talked about the big five. And look those up. They're fantastic. Take the um, One thing that throws a lot of people is one of the big five personality traits is what they call neuroticism. Mm. And it sounds really negative. <laughs> and I would say neuroticism is actually more about anxiety. 
And anxiety can sound like a bad thing, but if you have a very low anxiety score, you're gonna be very stable, steadfast, you're, you know, but you're also not gonna change. You're not gonna be a driver. You're not gonna be a, a change agent. Mm -hmm. And so that high neuroticism is really what they mean by that is you have a high anxiety level. And high anxiety is key to revolutions. It's the key to creation. It's the key to entrepreneurship and innovation. Because if you don't see how something can be better, yeah. then you aren't capable. If you can't see the problems and you're not worried about the problems, then you're never gonna see how you can improve them. Right. And I think that's really critical to remember. And, um, and yes, high neuroticism or that high anxiety is also, it also correlates with high levels of alcoholism and high levels of all sorts mm -hmm. of stuff, but it also correlates with high levels of success and change agent. And, uh, and so just, I just wanted to make sure everybody knew that, that these, what might be perceived as a weakness is actually also a strength. Yeah. Well, uh, people that are uncomfortable by being comfortable People that are like, I got, I got to improve something. Are, uh, I, I love those kind of people. <laughs> those are our peeps. Yeah, right? man. All right, there you go, guys. Again, reach out to Thaddeus. He has been a gift. He has been a blessing, and I think that uh, you know he. You should dig into his work. You'll appreciate it. Other than that, this is Don Wetch reminding you that opportunities are everywhere. We'll see ya.